Our focus today will be looking at the redemption that we have through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a fabulous section of Scripture. I, I mean, I, I love the book of Ephesians. I, I, uh, I've admitted that many times. But this, this hymn that we are working our way through from uh, chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians, verse 3 to verse 14, is so rich and so practical that I, I hope you are... Uh, being blessed as much as I am. But this morning is a very rich text. Uh, we'll, we'll look at this week and next. We'll, we'll probably take the two weeks at least to examine this, this second stanza of the hymn that deals with Jesus, the Son of God. But recall that as we're studying this, this adoration, this praise that Paul offers to the triune God, he, he does so with three big thoughts or stanzas. And we took a couple of weeks to examine that first one, the plan of the Father, which occurred before the world began. That's what Paul discussed in verses 3 through 6. But now we're going to look at that second or that middle stanza, namely the redemption that we have through the Son, which is what we are experiencing now. And we see that in verses 7 through 12. And so that'll be our focus, again, probably this week as well as next. It'll take us a couple of weeks to, to unpack that. And then we'll get to the third and final stanza dealing with the inheritance that we have in the Spirit yet to come. And don't forget, the whole purpose of this adoration is that Paul is trying to lift our eyes to the horizon, the eternal horizon, uh, for who he is and, and what he's done for us and, and so that we can live a life of uh, honor towards him, worship of him. But as we look specifically at this hymn to the triune God, and we look uh, specifically at this second stanza, the, the praising the Son for performing redemption, then we're going to break down this stanza into three big thoughts. There's three big ideas, the first of which we'll cover this morning, and then the next two next time. But these three big ideas are the big things that Paul wants us to realize, to understand, as we consider the redemption that we have in Christ, uh, the, the, uh, what he has performed in the gospel. First, we're going to look at that key word, redemption. That'll be this morning. That's, that primarily uh, is found in verse 7, but also we'll look at verse 8 and some of the thoughts that tie together to, with that. Then we'll see next time that we not only have redemption through Christ, but we have a special revelation that we have received through Christ. He is the Word of God, the living Word of God. Our greatest understanding of who God is comes through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, of course, He has revealed to us that final climactic stage of human history, the consummation of all things. And we will see that uh, unpacked for us in verses 10 through 12. And so these are the three ideas that we want to examine as we contemplate, again, the Son of God and what He's done for us. So if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and read from verse 7 to verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 1 and consider uh, the, the Son of God and what He's done for us in the process of redemption. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says this, "...in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He has abounded toward us with all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He has purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him." 
in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Now again, as we introduce and orient ourselves you know, to this paragraph, recognize that this paragraph or stanza of the hymn that we're, we have before us both this week and, and next deals with the present work of salvation. Note in particular verse 7, but we see this, this, this shift in tense. In other words, we have already looked at what God the Father did in ages past in the process of election and the determination uh, of the plan of redemption. But now Paul shifts tenses to what we now have in Christ, what Christ has done and, and what that purpose of redemption means for our lives. So the whole point of this paragraph, again, these three stanzas or paragraphs are, are structured not only theologically around the members of the triune Godhead, but also chronologically uh, when it comes to his, uh, you know, the, what he's done in ages past and what he's doing now, as well as what he will do in the future. So this, this paragraph in particular enables Paul to stress the present experience of redemption and forgiveness that believers enjoy through their, their dynamic relationship to their exalted Lord. This ex exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be a subject later on in chapter 1. When we get to Ephesians uh, 1 and really verse 15 to the end, he's going to talk about that exalted uh, role that Christ is experiencing now. But this paragraph is dealing with what Christ did to get there. In other words, the work of Christ that he achieved in redemption in order that that is, of course, what brings about his exaltation later, which is what he'll talk about later. So this concept of, of redemption is important to us, for us to fit into the context. If you're with us, and again, last time we had a missionary with us last week, but two weeks ago when we talked about uh, God the Father and the, the plan of redemption, recall that the people of God, which... He introduces, Paul introduces in those first few verses of the first stanza, the people of God have already been elected and predestinated. In other words, that is what has already happened in the past. However, we still need something. Though God has already planned redemption, he still needed to perform it. We who have been elected and predestinated still need something else. We need the work to be done. We need a special cleansing because we're not yet holy and blameless. Recall, he elected us to be that. His plan of redemption includes our ultimate perfection, that God's ultimate plan is to present us holy and without blame before him in love. We already talked about that. But how does it go from plan to accomplishment? Well, that is the second stanza. We need a work of redemption. We need cleansing. We need forgiveness in order to become what the Father would have us to be. And that's what this second stanza is all about. So what we see here is, is Paul tells us, in, our, in our, what we're going to focus on in verse 7 and 8 today, Paul tells us two big things about redemption. Namely, that Christ accomplished redemption through his blood and according to his grace. He accomplished redemption through his blood and according to his grace. Those are the big ideas. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, this is a hugely important biblical theological concept, which is why I want to take uh, you know, a whole session focusing on verse 7 and, again, some of the thoughts in verse 8, but primarily verse 7, and the concept of redemption. 
Because if you don't understand what this is, you're greatly impoverished when it comes to your understanding of the gospel. Uh, also, your, your ability to ultimately love and worship God appropriately because we must understand who he is and what he's done for us. That's what spurns us on to genuine, heart-filled, faith-filled, sincere worship. So what is redemption? What is redemption? Well, notice the biblical concept of salvation can be viewed from various angles using various analogies. I've, I've, I've talked on this in various uh, other venues in the past, and I can't Again, this is, it would take the whole New Testament to ultimately exposit this. It's a hugely important concept. But as you look at the gospel, it's kind of like a, a multifaceted, many-sided diamond. And to behold it in its beauty, you need to spin it, and you need to look at it from all angles. And we see the New Testament describing the gospel in various angles or using various analogies. For instance, we have the terms reconciliation or adoption. And that is harnessing family imagery, where we have a broken relationship that needs to be reconciliated, put back together, reconciliation, or adoption, the idea that we were uh, alone and we were alienated from God, but we, we have now been adopted into his family and made an heir through Christ. That's a family sort of analogy. We could study, for instance, the term justification, which is one of the big Pauline terms in the book of Romans. Well, that term is a, it's a legal word. It's using legal imagery to describe our standing before God as the just judge of the universe. And we have been justified not by our own works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. However, what we're looking at this morning, the terms redemption and forgiveness, which appear in our text, these two terms, and they're various, there's various Greek words that are behind these two English words, But these terms view our salvation from the vantage point of a commercial transaction. A commercial transaction. And I'll explain that as we go. But it's a helpful way to understand and begin to grasp our relationship to God, our Creator, our Redeemer. What God did through the person and work of Christ. Most specifically, the word redemption means to rescue or to deliver. That's what that Greek word that appears in our text That's what it means. It means to rescue or to to deliver specifically by paying a price. There's two particular Greek words that are interrelated. The verb means to, you know, uh, redeem or the noun redemption. But redemption, deliverance happens because a price, a ransom price has been paid. This idea is prevalent throughout the scriptures. We won't go there for sake of time. But you could write down Luke 21, 28, Hebrews 9, 15, Hebrews eleven thirty five, 35, where these terms appear, the terms redemption. Uh, we, there's many other places we could go to describe the idea of a ransom price, but that's the core behind the concept, is that God has secured our release, our rescue, by the payment of a price. So to be specific, to be precise, what we're talking about when we talk about redemption, one of the most beloved words in the Christian's vocabulary, is simply that Christ's death was the ransom. It was the price that was paid, while redemption was the result of it. We have been redeemed. We have been released. We've been rescued and delivered and set free because of the ransom price that was paid, namely the death of Christ on the cross. Now, again, to understand these concepts, we have a number of pieces of both Old and New Testament background that are very helpful for us to illustrate this point. 
For instance, we won't take a lot of time with this. We have in the past, and we will, particularly in our study of the book of Exodus, in our, in our Wednesday night series. But much, in fact, arguably the main informing background to Paul's usage of the term here, probably comes from the Old Testament. For instance, the term goel, the kinsman redeemer idea. We've spent much time in various uh, you know, classes and sessions talking through the importance of that. But the idea of Boaz right, and Ruth, and we see the kinsman redeemer at work there. We could comb our way through the Old Testament legal system to understand what a redeemer is and how they function. And that is an important Old Testament background for what Paul is using as he's harnessing you know, that background as our informing background for the term redemption. We could go especially to the Exodus event, which is what we're in the process of studying on Wednesday night, where the idea uh, specifically of God's securing a release for his people, and we'll get to that even more, the idea of the price that was paid when we get to the Passover in chapter uh, 12 of the book of Exodus, and we're coming up on that. So while this is, is very important background for us, most scholars believe that Paul was probably harnessing something that was contemporary to his own time, contemporary to Paul's time and place where he was living was the Roman slave trade. In fact, Ephesus, which is, you know, the book of Ephesians is, of course, written to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the center for the slave trade in Asia Minor. It was a huge port for the slave trade in the Roman Empire. And the concept of the payment of a price in order to secure freedom for a slave was common. It was so common that we have, I mean, just scads of evidence of this, all over uh, antiquity, and I'm going to show you a little bit of it in just a second. But this was most likely what was, would have resonated with Paul's original audience, those who are sitting in Ephesus, and they're thinking of the, the slave trade that takes place down the street, and they're thinking about the word redemption and what it means in that context. That's probably the analogy, the background, that Paul is harnessing in order to elaborate upon redemption and help us understand it. So for me to explain that and elaborate a little bit further, recognize that evidence suggests that purchasing a slave's freedom occurred so frequently that the idea of delivering a person by the payment of a price was common in Greek culture. This was embedded in Greco-Roman culture. And so it was, again, probably what Paul was harnessing. The liberation of a slave referred to in antiquity as manumission is a well-known practice in Greco-Roman world. In Paul's day, manumission had to be guaranteed by a god. Get the picture. As I explain the process and how it worked in Paul's day, note the parallels with the gospel and what God has done for us. But in the Greco-Roman world, if a slave was to be freed, the process of manumission had to be guaranteed by a god. Most commonly in that time and place, it was the god Apollo. So when this occurred, the liberation could not be retracted. In other words, the God had to oversee this so that when the, the freedom was declared, it couldn't be reversed. They were freed once for all. And they became, uh, in fact, a whole new status in Greco-Roman society. If you study this much, you, you hear the term freeman. Freeman shows up all over, it shows up in the New Testament as well, all over Greco-Roman writings. But that's the idea. It was a former slave. And remember, slaves were incredibly prevalent in uh, Roman society. In fact, it's estimated that uh, uh, up to, in fact, probably even surpassing one-third of the society, some will even go up to 40% of the Roman population was enslaved. Now, that makes a lot of sense from the perspective of Roman history. Most of the slaves came from warfare. 
they would go and they would conquer a, a, you know, they would be warring with some nation, they would conquer that nation, and one of the primary ways to enrich the Roman army and the Roman government was to enslave that nation, to sell them into slavery. So there were slaves of all kinds from all sorts of countries and backgrounds and ethnicities, and yet they, they, the slave uh, status could change. In other words, a slave could ultimately work enough to purchase their own freedom. And so this, this idea, the process of manumission, was very common in Greco-Roman society. Well, what would happen is that a slave, when they had enough money, either they worked for it or often a family member would come and purchase on, you know, them away from their master on their behalf. Or, or uh, even a, a beloved, you know, just a benefactor might do that as well. But what would happen is that the slave would show up to present their money, which is the purchase price. And they would come to the temple treasury. Typically, again, in this time and place, uh, it was the temple of Apollo that they would often come to. But they would come to the temple treasury. The priest would then give the money to the slave owner. Thus, the slave was considered to be now the property of the god. That's the idea. So he was then under the patronage, protection, and care of this god. From a civil perspective, then, he was completely a free man. Now, I'm going to give you, just to illustrate the point, the following couple of photos are taken from the temple of Apollo, located at Delphi, but it's inscribed upon the stones, and, I, and I'll show you the wall, and then I'll zoom up on one of the stones, and maybe you can see it, uh, maybe not so great from where you're sitting, but inscribed upon the stones at the base of the sanctuary are the names of freed slaves, as well as those who witnessed the transaction. Here's the foundation stones of the temple of Apollo there at Delphi. If you zoom into one of these particular stones, for instance, I don't know, can you see that very well? There's writing etched into the stone. Do you see that? Maybe it's kind of a little tough from where you're sitting. But nonetheless, if you were to read the names on here, it would be names of freed slaves as well as names of those often you know, included would be people witnessing the transaction, right? whether it's the priest or a family member or somebody who paid the price, whatever. But the point is, this is to be inscribed in stone at the, you know, on the temple of a god so that the god would guarantee the freedom of this slave. They have been redeemed. They have been set free. They are freemen. They are no longer to be enslaved. Now again, as you try and think through that analogy, that, that cultural reality in Paul's day, nonetheless, it's probably the analogy he's harnessing when he describes our relationship uh, to God and this concept of redemption. But what Paul adds in verse 7 is that we have been redeemed. We have redemption through his blood. In other words, Paul is very clear here in verse 7 that the price of our redemption was not mere silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I can't do better than the Apostle Peter, so pop over there or just allow me to read it and just uh, you can listen along. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 18 and 19, the Apostle Peter makes this same point. With beautiful language, he says this, verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In fact, uh, we, we alluded to this a while back, but it says in verse 20, this was our focus a couple of weeks ago with the idea of the plan of the Father, but notice how well it, it uh, dovetails in here. Verse 20 says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world? When was it decided? 
that Jesus would be, you know, his lifeblood would be the, the price, the redemption price, the ransom price. Well, it was decided before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. It has happened on the stage of history only recently, Peter tells us, but it's been planned from before the foundations of the world. Now, this concept deserves a little bit of time to unpack. Now, to be candid, we recently uh, finished, before our study in the book of Exodus, which is occurring on Wednesday nights currently, we did a study of the book of Hebrews. When we were in Hebrews chapter 9, we spent several lectures, I'd have to go back and count, uh, talking about the blood of Christ. And if you want to go deeper into this subject, I would recommend that to you. This is an incredibly fascinating subject that is, is worthy of very careful consideration. But let me try and give you the high spots. The price of our redemption is not mere gold and silver, but rather it's the precious blood of Christ, the most precious, unique, rare, valuable commodity in the entire universe. Well, the reality is God's justice requires a blood sacrifice as the substitute for our sin. Why? Because the wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death, and the life is in the blood. In other words, when you begin to understand God's perfect justice, we're going to come back and talk about that a little bit more in the end of the hour because many people today attack that. Uh, Many people don't understand it. They want to try and undermine it. But it's very important for us to understand and recognize that the gospel is simultaneously what allows God to uphold his justice as well as extend his mercy. Those, that seems, for, again, for, from when you understand the issues at play, that is an insurmountable problem. But God figured it out. God in his infinite wisdom figured out how to be just in the justifier of them who believe in Christ, Paul says. But God's justice, you must understand, God's justice requires this one-for-one ratio, if you will. If you and I have committed what you might call cosmic treason in our rebellion and sin against God, the price for that is ultimately death. The wages of sin is death. God told us that all the way back in the Garden of Eden when he gave Adam and Eve one command. He says, you eat of that tree, you will die. It hasn't changed. That's always been the wages of sin, the penalty of sin. And the reason is because we have sinned against an an infinite God. And we who have rebelled against him ultimately must forfeit our life. But here's the problem. No other human can offer himself as a substitute for another human. Why? Because there's no such thing as an innocent human. In fact, Moses, in Exodus chapter 32, many scholars will go back and, uh, and play off of this, but many, many scholars point this out. They remember when God was going to wipe out the nation of Israel, Moses actually offered himself up as a sacrifice for the nation, in a sense, as he intercedes for them. He says, Lord, take my, you know, take me instead, save them. And God says no. And God says no for a variety of reasons, but I think fundamentally is because it wouldn't have worked. Why? Because Moses was sinful. Moses had his own sin that needed to be paid for. So, the only permanent solution for our sinful state would be the innocent blood of a spotless and eternal human being to substitute himself for another human being. And guess what? We have one of those. But only one. 
We have one human who is spotless, innocent, perfect, never sinned, who is also eternal. Because here's the thing. What's the debt we owe God? Well, he's an eternal, infinite being. When we sin against him, we owe him an eternal, infinite price. That's what justice demands. But I can never pay that. There's no way. But in Christ, and this is the whole theme, this is what we took two, three weeks in Hebrews chapter 9 unpacking, is that in Christ we have the perfect solution. He's human, so he can substitute for other humans. He's perfect, so he doesn't have to pay for his own sins. We can have ours laid upon him. But he's also eternal. So the price is of eternal value, which now can meet the demands of an eternally just and holy God. Only Christ can be the solution for man's problem. But here's the reality that Hebrews, again, is so beautiful to unpack. But the blood of Christ is not merely valuable enough to substitute for one human. right? It's not just a one-for-one thing. Because he is perfect and he's eternal, his blood is so valuable, it can pay for all humans. And not just all humans, but all the sins of all humans. Recall, and again, we we don't have time to go back and unpack it, but I would encourage you to listen through our, our Hebrews study if this is of interest to you. But I put in your notes Numbers chapter 15. Why do I put that in there? Well, because if you study the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was limited as to its efficacy. Not all sins could be atoned for by the Old Testament sacrificial system by the blood of bulls and goats. And the blood of bulls and goats would, could only serve as a temporary solution. And you had to keep coming back and offering it again and again and again and again and again. But the author of Hebrews points out that we have in Christ eternal redemption. That's a powerfully loaded phrase. Eternal redemption. Once for all sacrifice that eternally secures our release. That's the blood of Christ is that valuable. And this is what Paul wants us to realize is that the debt that we owe can be entirely forgiven, which is what he, he goes on to say in verse 7. He says, notice, again, verse 7, rereading, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the blood was the, pay, the price that was paid, he says, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In other words, what Paul wants us to understand in verse 7 is that the primary result of redemption that he wants us to, to grasp is that we have been forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven. Now, for those of you who are not aware, the term forgiven is really important. It means at its core, the Greek word, the root of that word refers to something being put away or sent away. So when our sins are forgiven, they have been sent away. For instance, if you were to go there, we won't for sake of time, but jot this down. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18 uses this same Greek word, aphitomy, to describe the release of a, uh, a cap- someone who is in captivity, a prisoner. Someone who is captive, and yet they have been released and sent away. That's the same word that God uses to describe that when the, the, pe- the price is paid, just like that slave The price is paid and the slave can now go free. So too, the price is paid for our sins and our sins are released. We're free. Does that make sense? We're no longer held in chains. We're no longer bound in sin. 
We could go to a number of passages. John chapter 8, for instance, Jesus says that we, you know, we are bound by sin. He describes how the truth is to set us free. But free from what? He says, he who sins is in bondage to sin. And that's an analogy. It's a picture of how this, this sin that we, uh, that we perform against God is like a debt that is something we could, a debt that we, that we owe, an infinite death debt that we could never pay off. And that debt is what, in fact, uh, to, to take this analogy a step further, I said earlier that the slavery in the, in the Roman Empire was very common, uh, primarily because of warfare, but secondarily because of debt. Many people would enslave themselves or be forced into slavery because of debt. They were incapable of paying their debts. And so as a result of that, they had to enslave or be enslaved in order to work off the debt. Does that make sense? And yet here's the problem. We owe an infinite debt to an eternal God. We can never pay it off. But Jesus as the eternal spotless son of God can. So when that redemption price is paid, Paul says that secures for us forgiveness of sins. Our sins are put away. They're sent away. We are released from them. And the reality is that once the justice of God is met in the cross work of Christ, then God's justice must forgive repentant sinners. Why? Because a just God cannot punish sins twice. Think about it. God is perfect in his justice. If he has laid upon Christ the punishment for sin and Christ's blood is the payment, then all of us who are in Christ, we go free. Why? Because our sins have already been paid for. The sins have already been dealt with in Christ, and God won't do it twice. Does that make sense? Some use the illustration uh, of running from a fire. You ever use this or heard this illustration before? If you ever get caught in a fire, right? I've never, this has never happened to me, but I've been told that this is the way it works. So write this down, and someone double-check it for me. No, but if you're running from a wildland fire, what do you do? Well, if, if, you, if, you, if, if you can't you know, get away from it, then you start a backfire, right? You, you, you actually, you burn a section back towards the fire and then you get on that burnt section. Why? Because the fire will only pass over at once. That's the idea, is that you're now safe because the fire has already been there once. That analogy can be helpful. It's an illustration can be helpful when it comes to the cross work of Christ because in Christ, God's wrath has been satisfied the fire of God, which we talked about in the Sunday school hour, if you were here, the final portion of the book of Isaiah, God speaks of how he will come in fiery judgment, uh, coming with indignation against his enemies. Well, if you are in Christ, the wrath of God has already been satisfied in Christ. And so we're safe. The fire won't burn there twice. Does that make sense? That's the idea. He's an island of uh, redemption satisfaction of the wrath of God and safety for sinners. That's the idea. So Paul says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. But he goes on to say that this is according to the riches of his grace. That's the end of verse 7. According to the riches of his grace. In other words, redemption and forgiveness are granted to us out of the abundant surplus of God's wealth of grace. God has abundant grace, infinite grace. And so he has abounded toward us with this grace. And that's where our redemption and forgiveness comes from. In fact, the word that Paul uses here 
for the word riches or uh, the concept of his surpassing riches of his grace. That word is used in the Old Testament translation, the Greek, you know, the Septuagint, LXX. Y'all remember that? It's abbreviated form uh, for, it's referring to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. But in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 23, that's the word that is used to describe the incredible wealth of King Solomon. If you have no idea who King Solomon is, then crying out loud, go read 1 Kings chapter 10, all right? Go home and read that chapter, and you will discover that this is, he, he was not only uh, you know, the wisest man of all time, but he was the wealthiest man of his day. It describes the wealth that would come in annually into his kingdom. So much so, right, that the queen of Sheba would come, and, and it says, it took a breath away as she looked at the, the wisdom and the wealth of Solomon. Well, that sort of wealth is, is you know, the Greeks used a particular word to describe the riches, the surpassing riches uh, the abounding riches of Solomon. Well, that's the word that Paul harnesses here to describe the amount of grace that God has, the riches of his grace. You could also go, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In fact, I'm going to read that one because it's so good. And we're only a few pages back, right? So take a left and go back just a couple pages. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, puts it this way, which, by the way, don't forget the context of this. Um, this isn't a sermon on giving, but it could be, right? Because in 2 Corinthians 8, this is the context. As Paul is trying to collect a, uh, a you know, monetary gift from the Gentile churches in order that they might be a blessing to the, the Jewish church there in Jerusalem. But he, are, he uses an interesting argument here when he describes how we ought have a spirit of grace and giving because we have received a gracious gift from God. And he, and he uses that argument in verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, there's your word, he was infinitely rich in the halls of heaven, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Isn't that great? Man, that's just poetic. Thanks, Paul. Right? But he points out, he says, if you have a stingy heart, he says, you do not understand grace because look at what you have been given. Look at what Christ did for you. And when we understand his grace, he who willingly impoverished himself so that he might give us the infinite riches of heaven. He says, once you understand that and that gets hold of you, then you are in turn gracious, right? There's the thought connection. But back to Ephesians. The thought here is that the infinite riches of God's grace, the thought is that it ought comfort us. It ought give us not just comfort, but confidence in our relationship with God. In fact, in my undergrad years, here's a quote from a, a guy who was an old uh, World War II vet. I really enjoyed this guy. Carson Fremont was his name. He used to say this, quote, God has not only extended his grace and love to us, but he has lavished it. Paul will use this phrase several times in the book of Ephesians. He has lavished it, poured it out in great quantities on us so that it would be sufficient to save completely all those who would trust the Lord and deal with all the sins that they have ever committed, no matter how great those sins might be. No one would ever need to ponder or wonder, ponder or doubt if they have gone too far for Christ to save them, end quote. That's the point. The redemption of Christ the value of his blood, the wealth of his grace, 
the reality is his, he can save to the uttermost, or uh, Hebrew says. He can save to the uttermost. And I love that word because the word uttermost is, is not only talking about uh, you know, time, that you know, all the way up until the end, right? But even to degree. The idea is you can't, as Carson Fremont puts it, you can never go too far where you outrun his grace if you would simply bow yourself before him, admit your sin, trust in his grace. He is ready and willing to redeem. His riches are there. And so the picture, again, if we were to go back, and we talked about this a little bit uh, at the, the idea of the adoption two weeks ago, but redemption, don't, again, don't forget, all these terms, you, you put them together and it's the gospel. The gospel is that multifaceted diamond. You spin it around, you look at it from all angles. But recognize that this whole slave price that was paid and, and secures our release it's the gospel's more than that because not only are we released from sin, we're not just a freeman that has been freed, but we are also an heir that has been adopted. So all of this wealth, all the riches of Christ is now ours. We are joint heirs with Christ, Paul will say, and we'll, we'll get to that even later in Ephesians chapter two. So in other words, in this whole process, as we're looking at what Paul is unpacking for us in this adoration hymn, he wants us to recognize that this whole process of making us holy and blameless. Remember, that's what the Father planned for us back in verse 4, that we would be holy and blameless without, you know, totally without spot before Him in love. That process begins with redemption. In other words, for us to ultimately get to the point of being blameless, we must have redemption. The sacrificial blood of Christ is, is that which is the price. It secures our redemption. It facilitates forgiveness and our sins are released. But I want to take it a step further. Look at, notice verse 8. All right? Aren't you glad? Everyone just kind of wipe your brow. That took me 40 minutes. We got through verse 7. <laughs> but look at verse 8. He says, Wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, that verse is a hinge verse. We'll come back and we'll also see that verse next week because it's a good segue into chapter, you know, in verse uh, 9 and 10 of the chapter. But notice how it connects with redemption. To take it a step further, the redemption that we have in Christ is not only through his blood and according to his grace, but it's also wisely laid upon us. It says in verse 8, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. In other words, redemption is wisely gracious. The word translated prudence here in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 8 can also be translated skill. For instance, you can look up the Septuagint there in Jeremiah 10 and verse 12. But the term is that God has displayed his grace, lavished it, poured it out upon us. But he's done so with wisdom and skill. He's skillfully saved us. Now, what's the point here? God has wisely and intelligently lavished upon us his grace. In other words, God maintained his justice while simultaneously extending to us his mercy. This is that dilemma that I talked about just moments ago. And this the importance of this is more important than you might first realize. This idea that he has wisely lavished upon us his grace, that he has not only extended his mercy, but he has maintained his justice while he extends that mercy. This reality is more important than you might first realize. So I want you to ponder this for just a moment under this, this concept, this heading of requiring redemption. In other words, if we were to put it in the form of a question, why does God require redemption before he offers forgiveness and reconciliation? 
You ever thought that? Why doesn't God just say, boom, everyone's forgiven, and, he, and Jesus never had to die? Why does God require redemption as the prerequisite to forgiveness and reconciliation? Well, here's the reason. Think through it just briefly. If God is to maintain cosmic order as the judge of the universe, he cannot merely release us from our sins on a whim. Sin must be dealt with. Otherwise, his justice would be sacrificed. Illustration, imagine that if every prisoner in every prison in the world today were simultaneously released and allowed to practice their evils upon society without repentance nor hindrance. Imagine that for just a second. That's what it would be like for God to simply forgive or release sinners from their sin without justice being satisfied. Genuine justice, we've talked about this recently. We'll talk about it much more in our Exodus series. Genuine justice involves both retribution and restitution. It's a full-orbed sort of justice. God's divine justice works. But he cannot simply release sinners from their sin without the sin being dealt with. Rather, justice must be satisfied before the sinner can secure release. And true justice involves these various aspects. Retribution, that is punishment, because you chose to do the wrongdoing. So you need to be punished. Second, restitution. You need to pay back the victim where possible. And then rehabilitation when possible. That is, the sinner himself must be repentant and experience change. That's true justice. That's how you deal with sin, God says. That's God's definition of justice. But here's the thing. The life of Christ, his substitutionary death on our behalf, his resurrection, and his subsequent sending of the Spirit into our lives fulfills all of these requirements. God's justice is satisfied through Christ's perfect life. He, he's, he, he, is no, he has no sin to pay for himself, so he can take our sin upon himself as our substitutionary sacrifice. He rose again from the grave, and he sends the Spirit so that we can not only have our sins, you know, the wrath of God satisfied against our sins, but he can re- rehabilitate the sinner. He changes us from the inside out. Paul's going to have a lot to say about that in the book of Ephesians. But God is doing this whole, and we call this, again, we, we, the term redemption is, that we're talking about today is specifically the payment price, but we often use that term as kind of the umbrella word to describe the process of what God is doing to restore sinners to himself. We who are in rebellion against him who deserve eternal damnation, yet he is restoring us and he's doing it justly. So Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3 and verse 26, that God is both gloriously just as well as graciously justifying of all who believe in Christ. That the cross is the ultimate answer between you know, God's love or his, his justice, God's mercy or his wrath. Both of those are simultaneously satisfied in the cross work of Christ. But still you may be asking, why is this important? There's a fad today. Uh, I just finished uh, my master's work. I'm putting, I put a book, book review in on this. And uh, so it's fresh in my mind and it's driving me crazy. But there's a fad today in modern evangelicalism to charge God with being OCD or worse, being a bloodthirsty tyrant who is guilty of cosmic child abuse. That's the term that they're throwing around, that God is guilty of cosmic child abuse, that what kind of an ogre would require his 
son to die so that sinners could be released. Right? That's, that's, and again, they're, tot- they're grossly misrepresenting the gospel and misunderstanding the gospel. They don't get it. Did God the Father force God the Son to give up his own life? What did we just read in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9? He willingly laid aside his riches. He willingly went to the cross out of love for us. This is not child abuse. This is the Son in perfect harmony with the Father saying, Thy will be done. Well, why is this important? Let me summarize with these three thoughts and we'll be done. We'll transition. We have a baptism here today, which we'll participate in, and then we'll, uh, we'll dismiss, all right? But let me summarize with these three big thoughts. The requirement of redemption is important for three reasons, at least, and you could go on. But number one, it preserves God's perfection. He is trustworthy. In other words, look at the lengths to which God went to satisfy true justice. That shows me that God is a God who keeps his word. He is completely consistent with his own character. In other words, if he says it, he means it. If he means it when he says it, I can trust him. If God was a guilty, guilty of, of can I use the you know, analogy of a modern politician? But if God was guilty of making a promise and then going and, you know, in a backdoor deal, not keeping his word, he would be a fraud. But God is not a fraud. He's true to all of his promises and all of his threats. Does God punish sin? Yes. What's the proof? Look at what he did to his own son and the son willingly taking it. This preserves God's perfection. He is nothing less than absolute and infinite perfection. So we can trust him. Secondly, it perfects order in the universe. You cannot have heaven without hell. You realize that, right? Heaven could not exist without hell. Why? Because heaven, by definition, is the absence of evil. It's the absence of wickedness, sin, and iniquity. So in order to have heaven, you have to do away with wickedness. You have to confine it. So what does God do? He creates hell. Why was, the, why was hell created? Jesus told us this. Remember there? Matthew chapter 25. It was created for Satan and his angels. But if you want to join them, <laughs> that's on you. But that's the reality. Is that in the end, and, we're, and this is next week, and I'm kind of stealing my thunder a little bit, but this is next week. It's, here's, here's your commercial. There's a coming climax to history. We just read about it. Verse 9 and 10. He's made known unto us the mystery of his will. This is God's will. That, verse 10, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and in earth, even in him. God is going to reorganize the universe. And he is going to put it underneath the headship of Jesus Christ. And all evil will be dealt with. Justice will be upheld. Goodness will prevail. Peace and prosperity like history has never seen. But that can only happen when evil is dealt with. And this 
aspect of redemption, the requirement of redemption, is perfecting that order in the universe. And it's what gives us the happily ever after. But then lastly, it also provides genuine reconciliation. Let's be honest. You might be experiencing this right now in one of your relationships. Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a mother, father, sibling, friend, whatever. All of us have experienced the pain of a broken relationship. Some of us have experienced the joy of a restored relationship where there's genuine reconciliation, right? That's what the term reconciliation means, to reconciliate, to bring back together what was broken. Well, when you think about what it takes for genuine reconciliation to occur, you ever had this happen? When there was a wrong done to you or you were the one that did a wrong, for genuine reconciliation to happen, there must be admission of guilt. There must be restitution. There must be acknowledgement of evil done. And a conscious extension of forgiveness, etc. If you do not walk through those processes, then... Genuine reconciliation is elusive. It doesn't happen. It doesn't occur. But God wants this reconciliation with us. He wants us to be in perfect harmony with him as he intended at the very beginning in, in creation. But for that to happen, we have to be different. God can't let you into heaven right now. Why? Because you're not perfect yet. Me neither. He's working on us. At death or the return of Christ, he's going to finish the job. We call it glorification. But the reality is, we're not ready for heaven. We would ruin it if we went right now, as is. You know what I'm saying? But the reality is, God is in the process of perfecting you. Taking away all sin. Restoring perfect righteousness. And then and only then can genuine reconciliation occur. Does that make sense? The requirement of redemption is absolutely necessary because of at least these three things. It preserves God's perfection, perfects his order in the universe, and provides genuine reconciliation. A perfect God with perfected sinners dwelling in perfect harmony. That's what we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we close our service today and we transition to the baptism to follow, we pray your blessing upon these moments. That, Father, as we recognize what we have been given in Christ, the freedom that we have been given through the cross work of Christ, the infinite price that was paid on our behalf, Christ who willingly impoverished himself so that we might be made free and joint heirs with Christ. Lord, may this glorious work of redemption not be lost on us. May we recognize the value of it, the worth of it, the beauty of it, so that, Lord, as we come to worship you in prayer or in song or preaching, whatever, that, Lord, we would understand the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the gospel, and what it is that you have secured for us through the person and work of Christ. So lift our eyes to the glories of the cross, we pray. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.